you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to uh, Luke, uh, the second chapter, Luke, the uh, second chapter. It was uh, November 2011, and in November 2011, uh, we took a team from our church to go to Turkey to uh, work with some of our missionaries, and they had traveled from kind of around the area, and we met in Turkey, and so for one week, uh, we ministered to them, and it was just a great, great week. Knowing that Turkey was close to Greece, and having done some research, I realized that when we finished our trip in Turkey, our work in Turkey, that Janice and I could fly over to Athens, Greece, and I could run the Athens Marathon. That's where it all began. And so that was a part of the plan. I was all set to do this. And for the first time in my life, a week before we went to Turkey, I got painful shin splints. Now, I don't know if you've ever had shin splints. This was kind of the first time, but they were really painful. So painful that it was even hard to run, much less walk. So while we were there for our one week in Turkey, and I'm praying for these things to kind of settle down, I'm icing them reading everything I can as to what I'm supposed to do. And so whenever I got an opportunity, I'm putting ice on the shins. Uh, Alex Childs, who's our doctor, he's a gynecologist here, and he was our team doctor. And so even he was finding some things for me to take, and it didn't really help my shins, but I was a lot less moody. So that was, uh, that was nice. But, um, but it went through that, that week, and then we fly, and we get over to Athens, Greece. And as we get into Athens... Um, the people who are heading up this tour is a guy named Jeff Galloway and Jeff Galloway's a big runner, done tons of marathons. And, and, uh, I went up to him and it was the first time I met him and he did a little talk. And then I walked up and I said, I gotta tell you what my problem is. And I said, I got these painful shin splints over there. And he said, well, you know, this is one of the tougher runs, uh, you know, about 11 miles of it's just a gradual uphill. But then when you get to about mile 20, the last six is the downhill part. And that'll just, you know, kind of tear your shins to pieces. Well, thank you. I'm really, this is good. He said, but I, I will tell you, if you'll use my method, and it's called a run-walk method, it will keep your legs fresher, and I think it'll take the pressure off your shins and allow you to be able to finish. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you run a little bit, you walk a little bit. You run a little bit, you walk a little bit. And he said, just set it up like this. Uh, the first two miles you run so the crowd doesn't run over you. And then after about the second mile, then what you do is you run for like two and a half minutes and you walk for a minute. Run two and a half minutes, walk for a minute. And what will happen, he says, is it will change the way you do a run. And I had complained to him because I had run the Mercedes marathon earlier. And I said, you know, my first half marathon, I was smoking. And then I got to the second half, and it was like 45 minutes difference between the first split and the second, and it was horrible. I didn't enjoy it. I, felt I barely made it through there, and I said, I'm just tired of that. And he said, oh, no. If you go with my method, this is what will happen for you. He says, when you run, you use some muscles. When you walk, you use different ones. So your resting muscles, fixing muscles, all like that. He says, do this, and you will feel fresher at the finish. Your splits will be closer. You will pass people that had originally passed you, but you will pass them near the end. And when you finish, you will probably have a faster time you had before and your shins will be fine. So I did that. I said, I will try your method. I did his method. I ran 26.2 miles 
And when I came across the finish, I felt fresher than I'd felt before. My time was faster. My shins did fine. And my splits were within five minutes of each other. It was exactly what he had told me. Exactly. Isn't it nice when something happens and it's exactly what they said would happen? This Tuesday at our staff meeting, Michael opened up to the Luke 2 account of the shepherds. And he read it out of the message, Eugene Peterson's translation. And as he read it, and I'm going to read it with you, he came to the last verse and it jumped out at me. And this is how I began to craft the message for today. And so I want to read, and it'll be on the screen, from the message, how it describes Luke chapter 2, starting in the 8th verse. He says, and there were shepherders camping, sheep, sheep herders. There were sheep herders that were camping in the neighborhood. They had set night watches over their sheep. And suddenly God's angel stood among them and God's glory blazed around them and they were terrified. And the angel said, don't be afraid. I'm here to announce a great and joyful event that was meant for everybody worldwide. A savior has just been born in David's town, a savior who is Messiah and master. And this is what you're to look for, a baby wrapped in a blanket and lying in a manger. And at once the angel was joined by a huge angelic choir singing God's praises. Glory to God in the heavenly heights. Peace to all men and women on earth who please him. And as the angel withdrew into heaven, the sheep herders talked it over and said, let's get over to Bethlehem as fast as we can and see for ourselves what, day, what God has revealed to us. And so they left running and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Seeing was believing. And they told everyone they met what the angels had said about this child and all who heard the sheep herders were impressed. Mary kept these things to herself, holding them dear, deep within herself. The sheep herders returned and let loose, glorifying and praising God for everything they had heard and seen. It turned out exactly the way they'd been told. It turned out exactly the way they'd been told. But what had they been told? I mean, they're there doing a normal night's work, taking care of their sheep, uh, trying to protect them. And then in the midst of that, all of a sudden an angel comes up and the sky lights up. And the angel begins to tell them some things. And he shared, this angel shared a few things. And it says, today in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, they said, today in Bethlehem, there's a baby that will be born. So you need to go to Bethlehem. And when you find this baby, you'll find a baby and it'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes and it'll be lying in a manger. Now, for us growing up, the manger always seemed like something real sweet and nice. And it's kind of like Joseph built one and put the little hay there. A manger is a feeding trough. It's where animals go and they eat. And since they were there in this stable, the only place for the baby was to put them in a feeding trough. Now, it made it really easy for the shepherds to find the right baby. There weren't a lot of people during that day on HGTV that said, hey, let's get a feeding trough for our baby and put them in there. Skip the bassinet, let's go for the feeding trough. 
So they knew that if they went to Bethlehem and then they would see a child wrapped up in swaddling clothes and he was also there and he was in a feeding trough. And it said this baby is a savior. He's the anointed one. He's the Lord. And so when they went, apparently they went to Bethlehem, right? It says they saw the baby, yes. And they saw that he was in the manger, yes. And then it said they came back glorifying and praising God. And just knowing the fact that they said they were glorifying and praising God means they understood that this baby truly was the Lord. Because I just got to tell you, a bunch of crusty old shepherds, it's not like they're going to go see some baby and look at it and say, this is incredible, it's a baby. Can I just be honest with you? Uh, so most of us as guys, we see the baby and go, hey, good baby. And then we move on. And it's not like these guys are there praising and glorifying. This is the most incredible child we've ever seen. You know, they did do that, but you know why they did it? It's because it truly was the son of God. And they came back and they were praising God because of this. Because it was exactly what they had been told them. It was exactly what had been told them. We went to the city. Saw the baby in a manger. Christ's child. It was exactly what they had been told. And with that, you began to see, look back and see an amazing progression. How everything in Jesus' life was exactly as we have been told. Now, just to try to put this in perspective, to kind of get us for today. 1874, a man by the name of Winston Churchill was born. He was born in what was called Woodstock, uh, Oxfordshire, England. And born in a little small town of about 1,200 people. In 1874, he was born. Now, what if... About 750 years before that, there was a man living around 1100 A.D. by the name of Anselm the Canterbury, all right? Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, England. Now, Anselm was a religious leader, well-respected. And let's just pretend that if you were going back to the readings of Anselm, that he wrote in the future... There will be a man that will be born in Woodstock, Oxfordshire, England, who will lead his country to victory in a world war. And he wrote that 750 years before it ever happened. Would you say that would be amazing? Can you say amen? I mean, that is incredible. And if you were flipping through his readings, he says, look at this. 750 years before he predicted in this little small town of 1,200 people that a great leader would be born and he would lead us through a world war. He didn't even know what world wars were. That would be incredible. Now, before you walk out of here and start Googling it, it never happened, okay? It never happened. But if it did, <laughs> that'd be something to talk about, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, as amazing as that is, and it didn't happen, with Jesus, it did. There was a man who was a prophet. His name was Micah. And Micah, in what we have in the Old Testament, chapter 5, verse 2, in his writings, says this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. What he's saying is that this Messiah that has been talked about, this anointed one, it will be, he will come. And guess where he'll be born? He'll be born in Bethlehem. 700 years before Jesus was born, a prophet Micah said, this anointed one will be born in Bethlehem. It's a small town, but this is where he will be born. And guess what? The great thing about it, it turned out exactly the way that he told it. Because you'll see here that um, in uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, it says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? There was a tax that was going to happen, and they were taking a census to be able to tax the folks. And so you had to go back to your lineage, back to the city. And so for him, it was Bethlehem. And it says, because he's of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and what city was he born in? Bethlehem. And Micah, 700 years before that, said the baby would be born where? Is that amazing to you? Yes. Now, see, most of you were more amazed that Amselm would have predicted uh, Winston Churchill. (laughs) This is incredible. 700 years before, Micah says, this is where he'll be born. And it turned out to be exactly what they said it would be. That's just amazing. But you see, in 700 BC, there was another prophet. His name was Isaiah. And in his writings, look what Isaiah says. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So now he says, Emmanuel, which means God with us, he's saying that this Messiah, this anointed one, he will be born of a virgin. Well, that's never happened before. But yet he puts that out and says, this is going to happen. Listen, 700 years later, Look what it says in the book of Matthew. It says here, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. Let's figure this out. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. It turned out exactly the way they had been told seven years hundred years ago and what they said 700 years ago the child will be born of a virgin and the child will be born in Bethlehem to me that's kind of amazing but just like the guy who's selling the Ginsu knives there's even more are you ready this is amazing I mean you just think those two are amazing get this all right 2100 years before Jesus was born 2,100, 2,100 years before Jesus is born, in Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, God calls a man, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to build a great nation out of you. And look what he tells Abraham. He says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, who 
Who could be born so that every family in all the world would be blessed? The only answer to that is that it's got to be God himself. He's the only one that could be a blessing to all the families. So what he's telling Abraham is that through you, through your lineage, through your seed, there will come this Messiah, this Savior. 2,100 years ago, out of all the people that are created in the world, God chooses one man. He says, Abraham, and I'm making a prediction that the Son of God is going to be born through you. All right? Let's fast forward to 1859 B.C., about 250 years. When you get to uh, 250 years, Abraham, uh, he has a son, Isaac, and then uh, Isaac's got Jacob, and then Jacob's got 12 sons. And so Jacob, with his 12 sons, as he's getting ready to die, he gives a blessing. So, but first of all, let me go to, I got a genealogy list on a David. All right, David's waiting for this slide. We worked so hard on this, all right? Because I said, let's put it right here. 2100 BC, Abraham, all right? Starting a genealogy. Second, 1859, I want you to look at this verse. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, in giving a blessing to all 12 sons, he comes to his son Judah and he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This verse translated by, by, uh, by everyone is that this is the prediction that the Messiah will come through the lineage of Judah. And so they've got 12 sons of Jacob, but this one son, Judah. So what does the genealogy look like today? This is what it looks like. 2100 BC, it's coming through Abraham. 1859 BC, it'll go through Judah. And then you go to 600 BC. And there's a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah writes this in Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Now, David was a king about 1,000 B.C. I will raise up for David from his lineage a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He says, from David, from his lineage will come the Messiah. So look what it looks like now. All the way from 2100, 859, 600 BC, Abraham, Judah, David. The Bible is starting to zero in as to the earthly genealogy of the birth of Jesus. So did it work? Matthew 1, 1. If you look in Matthew chapter 1, he goes through all the genealogy. I will not go through all of it. Let me just hit some of the, the highlights. One, two, Abraham was the father of Isaac. You go a little bit further, and Judah, the father of Perez, and verse six, and David was the father of Solomon. The genealogy of Jesus is exactly what they said. So what does it look like now? This is what it looks like. You come all the way down, and you've got Jesus. It is exactly, it turned out, exactly the way that they had been told. Throughout all the Old Testament, and from 2,100 years to 1859 to 600 years before he was born, the Bible says the Messiah will come and this is the genealogy. I said, to me, that's just incredible. I mean, that's amazing. And so when you come to Christmas and you're thinking about Christmas, you need to think about everything happened exactly like we were told. We were told that it would come through Abraham's seed. We were told it would come through the tribe of Judah. We were told that it would be the lineage of David. We were told he'd be born of a virgin. And we were told he'd be born in Bethlehem. And all of this happened hundreds of years before Jesus 
was ever born. See, to me, that's amazing. Because it turned out exactly the way that we were told. But hold it. It doesn't stop there. There was a total of 61 major prophecies of Jesus' life and death. And so a number of years ago, a man tried to figure out the probability of all those prophecies happening in the life of one individual. Now, you could take 61 prophecies and find maybe one or two things that could match up with someone. But what this man did is that he took eight of the prophecies. One of them was that he was born in Bethlehem. He took some from his death, talked about that he was prophesied in in Psalm, that he would be crucified. Uh, Also, he talked about that he'd be um, uh, betrayed, uh, 30 pieces of silver. Uh, The silver would be thrown back into the the, uh, sanctuary and would be used to buy a potter's field. He just took eight of these. And he took these eight and he began to run some numbers on that. And he said the probability of one man being able to fulfill eight of those prophecies was 10 to the 17th power. Now, young people understand that. For us older folks that forgot our math, that means 10, and then you put 17 zeros next to it. Can you see that? 10, 17 zeros. The probability that one man would fulfill eight of those prophecies. But I see some of you are saying, I just can't put my head around that. So I'm here to help you. Okay, let's pretend that we took out all the pews of this worship center. On the downstairs, took out all the pews, took out the elongated stage over here. We took all these out. This is about 13,000 square feet. Got about 13,000 square feet. And then we brought in a truck and we unloaded silver dollars. Y'all seen what silver dollars look like? They're bigger than a quarter. All right, silver dollars. You take silver dollars and you fill this whole room up two feet thick, two feet deep, all this room here. Then we're going to take one of our young people over here and we're going to take one young person volunteer and we're going to call you up and and we're going to have you kind of, kind of turn your, going to take you out for just a moment over here and we're going to bring, take one silver dollar and put an X on it. We're going to throw it in the mix and we're going to bring in this big mixer and we're going to mix it all up. And then we're going to call you in and we're going to put a blindfold on you. And I will take you personally to right over here. We go about two feet. What do you think? About right in here, this step or so. And I'll put you on those and I'll say, walk across this whole room. Dig as deep as you need to dig and pick up one silver dollar. And if you get the X, you win. What do you think the odds of that happening would be? See, some of you are saying, that's 10 to the 17th. Not even close. Take that exact same story, and instead of putting it in our worship center, put it over the state of Texas. 270,000 square miles. Take one person, blindfold them, stick them anywhere in Texas. Let them walk around, pick up one. And if they hit the one with the X, it's 10 to the 17th power. That is the probability that one man could fulfill eight of those prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 61. See, 
Everything they told us happened exactly like they said it would. And this is part of the thing that is just so incredibly amazing about who Jesus is and about the story of Christmas. Because that is what began to put everything in motion. Now, you think that you're amazed right now. It gets even better. You say, I don't know if I can handle it. Well, hang in there, all right? This is amazing. If you go all the way back before Abraham, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We're talking the beginning of creation. God created man, he created woman, created Adam, he created Eve. And he says, you can do anything you want to in this garden. You got full freedom, do anything you want. But there's one tree over there, the knowledge of good and evil. You cannot eat of the fruit of that tree. But you can eat of every other fruit. You can enjoy everything here. You can do anything that you want. But just that one tree, hey, don't, don't eat that. As you know, Satan, disguised as a serpent, came up and began to talk to Eve. He said, whoa, the tree looks pretty good. I know God sat there and was telling you that if you eat of that, you'll die, but that's not really right. If you eat of that tree, you'll be as smart as God. And the fruit's incredible. I think you need to take a bite. Come on, think for yourself. So she did. And then she called her husband and he didn't think for himself. And he ate some too. And so all of a sudden, it says sin entered the world. And so as sin enters the world, then God shows up. He's got something to say to Adam. He's got something to say to Eve. But he's also got something to say to the serpent. And this is what he said to the serpent, Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. At first when you hear that, you say, I don't know what that means. Listen, what he's saying is that God already has a plan to be able to fill in the gap that was caused by sin. And he's already predicting what was going to happen, that he was going to send his son. He was going to send a Messiah, a Savior. And he was putting Satan on notice to say, what's going to happen is I will bring him into this world. And he says, you will strike his heel. You will strike his heel. And so what did happen? Well, because sin entered the world, it broke our perfect relationship with God, our perfect fellowship with God. And because that was broken, all of a sudden, there had to come ways to try to breach that. And so man tried everything they knew. They would do sacrifices, ask for forgiveness. God would forgive. They'd do sacrifices over and over And then finally, what God said is the ultimate sacrifice. I'm going to send my son. And he sent Jesus, who we celebrate his birth in a couple of weeks. He sent Jesus. And when Jesus came, he lived for about 33 years. And he showed us who God was. And and whenever you could see him, you could see the father. And he, he explained some of the teachings and he helped us to understand the love and the forgiveness and the mercy and, and the wonderfulness of God. But at the same time, that God's judgment and, and that God would hold us accountable. And so all these things Jesus showed us. But when he was about 33 years of age, he was betrayed and, and uh, he was arrested. And when he was arrested, he was in falsely accused. He was beaten and he was placed on a cross, suspended between heaven and earth for six hours. And he was crucified. And he died on that cross. His blood was spilt. And as his blood was shed, it was the blood that was shed. It was the sacrifice that was necessary 
to cover our sins. And um, you go back to Genesis 3.15 and it says, and you will strike his heel. That's a fulfillment of the fact that the crucifixion will take place and Satan, you will strike his heel. And he died. And they took that lifeless body off a cross and they placed it into a borrowed tomb and they closed it shut. And from Satan's standpoint, he thought he'd won. He had sin, he had death, and the battle was won. But you see, Jesus had predicted what was going to happen. He told his followers that he was going to die. But then he also kept telling his followers, and in three days, I will be raised from the dead. And you know what? Sure enough, it turned out exactly the way that he had told them. And in that glorious Easter that we celebrate, Jesus was raised from the dead. And when he was raised from the dead, no longer could death hold him in. He was now alive. And by him raising from the dead, he made notice to all the world that he was that payment for sin. He says, I have made the ultimate payment for your sins. And you don't have to spend eternity separated from God. You can come into a right relationship with God through the acceptance of the gift of what he's given us, that grace gift of him having paid the sacrifice for our sins. And then it says in one day he's coming back. And in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, listen to what he says. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And here comes the fulfillment of he will crush your head. How do you kill a snake? What do you have to do? You got to crush his head. You don't sit there and mess with his tail. Why? He'd come back and bite you, right? You got to crush his head. And yeah, he bit, us, he bit in the hill. He bit Jesus, man. He was crucified. But then when he raised from the dead, and then one day when he comes back, he says, you crush his head. It's a done deal. Isn't it amazing? Thousands of years ago that God laid out a plan. And in his plan, it was that his son would suffer and die for the sins of the world, but that all things would be under his feet and that he would crush Satan. And the way this is going to end, well, Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, it says that after Jesus comes back, and then we get to the final judgment. It says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You may look at me and say, you really think this is going to happen? I said, well, (laughs) everything else that God has said and Jesus has told us has turned out exactly the way that we've been told. So I feel 100% confident that they'll be correct in their prediction of what's going to happen to Satan. I don't think he's going to be completely true until he gets to the last book of the Bible and get to the last couple chapters and then say, well, I may have messed on that one. Not at all. It's exactly what's going to happen. And you know why? Because it'll turn out exactly the way that we've been told. So let's go back to the shepherds for a moment. When the shepherds were there and the angel spoke to them, you know what the angel angel told them? Today in Bethlehem, there will be born Christ the Lord. Christ. That means the Messiah, 
the anointed one, is born today. It means the Lord. The baby in the manger was God himself in the flesh with all the power and authority under heaven. Today. And it's exactly the way that he told him. A savior is born. And so what's the purpose of this child? It is to reconcile us back to God. To bring us back to God by providing for the forgiveness of sins. And when they saw this savior, they went away glorifying God, praising and rejoicing because of what they had seen. Because it was exactly what they had been told. It was exactly what they were told. So what does this mean for us? Well, the way I understand it is since this turned out to be exactly what they had been told, then I think we can feel good about everything else that the Bible has told us. We can feel confident in the character of God. Because if everything is exactly the way we've been told, leading up to the birth of Christ and to the death of Christ, and now even to the second coming that we trust in faith will all take place. What it does is it begins to give us a certainty about the character of God. And the Bible says that God is my strength. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. He's my shield. He's my salvation. He is my stronghold. God is faithful and true. He has a steadfast love that never stops. He says in his word that I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. And this same God, who everything he told me is exactly the way it happened. This same God that tells me I will never leave you or forsake you will be true to his word. And so no matter how much difficulty you walk through, no matter how dark the days may be, When this same God says, I'm the light of the world, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. I am your strength, I am your rock, I'm your fortress, I'm your stronghold. We need to accept that. And we accept it because everything he told us is exactly what happened. And it turned out exactly the way that we have been told. And so there's no reason for me to think it's going to stop now. And I thought about those shepherds. And you know the message they gave him? They said, go to Bethlehem. You'll see a baby in swaddling clothes, in a manger, son of God. Go. He didn't sit there and promise them that none of them were going to trip on the way over there. He didn't promise them that there'd be sometimes maybe in the dark that they would miss a turn here or there and get a little confused. He didn't promise them that they wouldn't bump into some people that were prejudicial because they didn't like shepherds. He didn't promise them the easiest road. All he said was, hey, I'm telling you where it is to get over here. He would guide them. He would direct them. Doesn't mean he always kept them from difficult times even to get there to Bethlehem. But you know when they got there and they saw exactly what God had said and it was exactly true, their response was what? They praised God. They let loose and they were glorifying him. You know, this Christmas, when you see the baby... And you, you think about the baby in the manger. It is a bundle of fulfilled promises. It's a bundle of fulfilled promises of what God has promised thousands of years to hundreds of years is right there. And then this same child will do exactly what he told you he will do. And so it's my hope that as we go through the Christmas season, That we'll always remember that this child, this Jesus, has done exactly what he said he would do. 
And he will do for you and for me exactly what he says that he will do. May we always remember that. Wow. And be amazed. And look back at this Christmas story and say, I just, I can look back over here to all the prophecy stuff. This is just incredible. And then begin to look at his teachings and say, this is incredible. And then to know that when I turn my life over to him, that he says, I will always be there for you. This is beyond incredible. And then to know that one day when I take my last breath on earth, I'll take my first breath in heaven because I've been adopted into God's family and I'll spend eternity with him. Wow. And how can I bank on that? It's because everything he's told me has come out exactly like he said it would. And so I got to trust him and put my faith and put my commitment to him and say, God, arms wide open. I trust you. I trust who you are. I trust what you've done in the past. And I trust what you can do in my life from today, from each day forward. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. Father, we are thankful for the reminder today of... uh, just the amazing story of the birth of your son. But to me, what's even more amazing is to know that thousands of years ago, you planned this out. And you continue to put signposts along the way so that we wouldn't miss him. And Lord, may today be a day where we look back over there and for some that are here who said, man, I missed all of that. May the pointing out of the signpost along the way draw some to you today and to say this truly is the son of God this baby is the son of God and then Lord for us who have maybe gotten off the track a little bit maybe there have been some difficulties in our life and and we question who you are and we question your character may this be a reminder that you have never changed. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you're that same rock, that same fortress, our same salvation. You are still the one that is there to hold us and to strengthen us and to help us through hard times. May today, especially for some who feel like this Christmas season is a very difficult time to walk through, that today that you would bring comfort and strength and say, you have trusted me before, you've got to continue to trust me. Because you tell us that everything you've told us, it will happen exactly like you told us. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.